everybody. This is another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. <laughs> and as you might be able to tell from Amelia's voice, uh, what we're going to be talking about is another update on Amelia's COVID, uh, particularly in the context of the president's diagnosis with the coronavirus and his symptomaticness, so much so that he has been uh, admitted to the hospital for presumably observation, but we'll find out. And I want to talk a bit about schadenfreude and how to cope with our own feelings that are maybe not the best of ourselves. According to the press conference with the president's physician, he was taken to Walter Reed, quote, because he's president of the United States. Not for any medical reasons. And honestly, to the extent that that's true, fair enough. Absolutely. I mean, if there's such a thing as, like, necessary personnel. Totally. I'm... I'm just saying. Yeah, that it, it doesn't mean that he's very, very sick. No. Physically. No. Nope. the COVID infection. Yeah. Again, so let, let's check in with Amelia first, because uh, here's a real person. So, recap, I got COVID in June, right after Father's Day, and I was sick for about mm, seven or eight days. I was, I, could, I was sick in bed, sick, um, which is longer than a normal cold for me, significantly longer. And I stayed in quarantine a couple of days longer than that. Uh, and no one that I know else got sick. I was tested. The test came back negative. But the timing of my test was such that um, that kind of test with that kind of timing has about a 20, 38, sorry. 40. The timing of the test, uh, yeah, and my particular test has about a 38% false negative rate. So it's just about a flip of a coin as to whether or not it was accurate. And the um, the medical professionals who saw me were like, yep, this is what COVID looks like. So I had presumed COVID. And then after I was not in quarantine anymore, I thought, yay, I'm healthy now. And then I discovered that I was still like really tired all the time. And um, I was still having joint pain, like joint pain. It was a main symptom for me during the actual initial illness. And it just didn't go away. So then I was like, oh, I guess guess I'm a long hauler, except I didn't really identify as a long hauler until mid-September. That's when I was like, oh, I'm a long hauler. Really? Yeah. Mid-September? Yeah. Because you and I, we have talked about this. I, I always thought, well, my symptoms were too mild to count as like real, real long hauler symptoms. Oh, Jesus Christ. I... Uh... Look, for all the people listening, this is part of what human giver syndrome sounds like. My thing isn't bad enough to count. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if you were saying to yourself about any aspect of your life, my suffering isn't bad enough to count as suffering worth honoring. Anyway, so then there was a complication, which is that I discovered that the joint pain, okay, no, my primary symptom was the fatigue. I was so, I could work about 15 minutes and then I had to rest for three or four hours. 15 minutes of doing things and then three or four hours of resting. It was, it was intense. I felt like my whole body was covered in one of those lead aprons you wear when you're at the dentist and they take your x-rays. I felt like I was wearing a unitard made of lead all the time. I thought I was just slow to recover. I didn't think that was like officially long hauler. And I was thinking, all right, I've got two weeks till I go back to school. And for those who were paying attention to the timeline, this is the part where she felt like her suffering was not bad enough to count. 
I don't know how I'm going to work full time when I feel like this. So this is a time when I was considering taking a kind of a medical leave. So I contacted my physician Mm -hmm. and got some blood tests. And it came back that my kidney and liver were not functioning properly. And the first thing they asked was, are you drinking alcohol? And I was like, yes, of course I'm drinking alcohol. I mean, I don't drink like in an unhealthy way. I'm pretty careful actually not to drink in an unhealthy way. But yeah, I drink two, maybe even three glasses of wine a day. Like it's the middle of the summer. Sometimes I have wine with lunch and then also wine with dinner. And I didn't think that there was anything dangerous about that. Mm -hmm. Never, never, ever have thought about that. Um, what it would do to my liver. And I also discovered that the drug that worked best for my joint pain was Tylenol. Ibuprofen didn't touch it. Even naproxen didn't touch it. It was Tylenol was the one thing that made a difference. So I was taking Tylenol two and three times a day for more than three weeks. And apparently you are not supposed to do that. So here's a public service announcement. Don't take Tylenol for more than 10 days without consulting your physician. That's that's apparently the official party line. And it turns out that's like really real because the threshold between an effective dose of Tylenol and a poisonous dose of Tylenol is very narrow. So mm, I stopped drinking alcohol completely. I stopped taking Tylenol. And two weeks later, my liver test came back normal. My fatigue did ease up. I did start to feel slightly better. So like, say my normal self is 100%. And by the time I called my primary care person... I was down to about 15% of my normal energy level after I uh, made my liver better by cutting out the Tylenol and the alcohol. I was up to about 25%, which is not enough of a percent. So then the semester started and I had to start teaching. And it's been about six weeks that we've been in the semester. And I noticed that, I mean, when my liver test came back normal, I was like, so, so what do I do now? And they were asking, well, what else is wrong with you? Like, you know, trying to figure out and narrow it down. And I I had discerned, here's an important discovery I made, that sometimes my need to lay down was not just fatigue. Sometimes my need to lay down was my heart racing and maybe like being a little lightheaded. And also I was lightheaded when I sneeze or blow my nose. And apparently that's a heart thing. So I wore a Holter monitor for two days. Like they put little electrodes on you and you wear an electric thing and it monitors your heart rate. And um, they did not tell me that it would cost $900 to do that test. And they did not tell me that it would take a month for those results to come back. So that was more than two weeks ago. And I have no idea what the test results are. I bought a Fitbit though. And that's been helpful to monitor my resting heart rate and to see like, oh my God, when I do laundry... When I'm hanging laundry on the line, my heart rate goes up to like 140, which is which is too high. So my heart's fucked up. I still have joint pain and fatigue. I'm up to about energy levels up to about 60%. I can work about four hours a day. And I'm so tired that I go to bed around seven most days. And then on top of the fatigue and the joint pain, and my heart racing all the time, I also have insomnia. So I'm fucking exhausted and I cannot fall asleep. And I actually have had insomnia in my life before. And so I have medication to take and I have several kinds of options. So I'm not taking the same thing every day if I don't have to. And um, even my strongest medication doesn't even touch the insomnia. I can feel the medication working. I can feel it in my bloodstream and I'm laying there awake for four hours waiting to fall asleep, exhausted, like, like, my limbs heavy and I can't move and I'm, and I'm exhausted. 
and I can't sleep. So that's that's the COVID update. That's oh, and my hair's falling out, <laughs> like by the fistfuls. Yeah. So I feel like that was a long complainy rant that maybe was not enjoyable to listen to, and like why would anybody listen to that? But that's the update. That's what's going on. That's how I feel. That's where things stand. Well, this is a mild case mm-hmm. of COVID. You've never had a really serious fever. You didn't have the hallucinations and the racking cough. Like you didn't nope. get dangerously sick. You never had to be hospitalized. You never needed oxygen. Your blood oxygen level never dipped to a dangerous level, mm-hmm. which you know because you were using the uh, pulse oximeter. Yeah. And apparently that is true for about 90% of people who get it. And yet here you are. So if there is anybody out there who still is thinking they don't need to take this seriously, they're young, they're healthy, if they get it, it'll just be like a few days of not feeling well and then they'll be all right. All right. No, no, no. But 90% of people don't have three months of intense fatigue and joint pain. 90% of people... No, that is not accurate to say that it'll be a few days of feeling bad and then you'll be all right. Right. So that's nine in 10 who don't. But that is far too big a risk. Yeah. About one in 10 people who get COVID go on to be long haulers, which means they're sick for more than a month. It's millions of people. Yeah. And also population level, more than 1% of people, total population, die. Yeah. So it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And I, uh, I'm i also having some, like, trying to get work done, trying to do my job. Um, my university gave us the option no, they didn't give us the option. They they required us to fill out paperwork to get an exception to work only online. And I said, I want to work hybrid. And they didn't require me to do any paperwork for that because I was still going to meet students on campus at least once a week. And the students at my university really want to meet on campus. And frankly, I'm better at teaching on campus and I like it and I'm used to it and I wanted to do it. So I tried and um, I I had to give up and... While I'm waiting for my Holter monitor results to come back, I'm going to start the paperwork to officially get an accommodation for... I mean, I guess what this is called is a post-viral syndrome, and and SARS-CoV-2 is not the only virus that causes a post-viral syndrome like this, but it it is not... Not all viruses do this, but some of them do. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a thing that exists and sort of people know, oh yeah, this is a thing that happens. And generally it kind of goes away on its own. But there is a chance that it could initiate an actual diagnosable chronic fatigue, which is this exact set of symptoms that I have when it lo- goes on for longer than six months. This, If this kept going for another three months, this would officially be chronic fatigue. Or ME. Myosophil- I can't ever remember what the ME stands for. I can't either. Yeah. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. I think that's it. Okay. It, we call it chronic fatigue. People who can't remember or ME. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I have, and um, I'm I'm working on trying to make my situation work at my university so I can actually do my job kind of a little bit. Well, that mostly sucks. That sucks. Yes, I am much better. I know that I'm. I sound like it's really bad because it is. It sucks. It's hard, but I am much better. There were days in August when I'd be laying on the couch, wondering if it would be less energy to go into the kitchen and eat the only food that was like zero prep food, which was like, I could picture a, a green pepper in the refrigerator. I knew I'd have to cut it and clean it to eat it. And that seemed like less work than going online on my phone and ordering Chipotle to be delivered 
And I was like, which one should I do? Which one is less effort? I haven't eaten all day. I'm really, really hungry. I would rather wait 45 minutes for Chipotle to show up than get my ass off the couch and go stand up to cut and then clean a green pepper. That was really bad. That was when my liver was not doing well. I was, you know, that was really bad. So I'm much better. <laughs> That's the point at which I was saying maybe you should take medical leave. Yes. And it turns out that when you take medical leave, um, your you, your employer is allowed to require you to give 30 days notice. And I think that that's, you know, that makes sense, especially as a university professor. It's not like they can just, I mean, I'm just going to not teach those classes. They're going to have to hire someone else to teach those classes or those students going to have to sign up for a different class. Right. I felt like I could teach because I'm an idiot, I guess. Well, no, you have human giver syndrome. And as we say in the rest chapter of burnout, you can, you absolutely can get by on less than you absolutely need. No one who cares about you would want you to get by. And, but the thing is you could, and you have gotten by. Yeah. And when you do get by, people say, oh, look, you can get by. Therefore, you don't need any accommodations. So, yeah, my, my students can tell that I'm not right. Sick. Yeah. And you've been clear with, you've been uh, transparent with them about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I said, so this is what's happening. This is why. I mean, I'm wearing a heart monitor. Like they can, like, I don't have any clothes that are high enough in the neck, like that I can wear in this, you know, warm weather that actually cover up all of the electrodes on the heart monitor. So yeah, they, they know. And like, you know, it's right there on my belt. So they know I, I can hide it because I'm, I'm so, I can't climb stairs. I mean, I can climb a flight of stairs and that's fine. And a lot of people who are in, who are having the post-viral syndrome can't climb stairs at all. So a lot of people have it worse than I do, but I, it's, it's not good. It's, it's, that's my COVID update. Everything sucks and the world is terrible. <laughs> yeah. Your suffering is enough to count. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I've, I've decided that I've taught the first half of the semester, meeting my students on campus once a week. I'm getting better at teaching online because I've been teaching online once a week and the content of my courses is shifting to content that is almost just as well served online as it would be meeting in person. So I feel okay about moving online. And the, the improvement to moving online isn't just that I don't have to stand in front of a classroom. It's that I have to shower and put on clothes and get in my car and drive to campus and walk to my classroom and then walk back to my car and then drive home again. And I, I can't stand up comfortably long enough to shower. I take, a, I take baths. I lay down to bathe because taking a shower um, is, means I have to stand up the whole time. And that is not comfortable. I've stopped being careful about what I eat. I've stopped cooking. I gave up because you have to prioritize. You have to choose. What am I going to do? How am I going to use this energy that I have? I no longer clean the house. I no longer cook. I eat processed packaged foods. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what you do. Yeah. That's what I do now. This is how I live now. So not teaching on campus is a, is a big relief because it means I don't have to do all of that stuff you have to do to go be in public. Mm -hmm. I just have to put on my Zoom shirt and put on a <laughs> hat or a scarf. And, you know, it's, it's, it's better. Well, good then. So uh, Trump has COVID. Yeah. Do you, do you have any feelings about him getting the disease you have? I really don't i really thought like so my husband is usually awake in the middle of the night that's his routine so he 
was awake in the middle of the night and he said, Trump has COVID. And I was like asleep. And he said, what? Trump has COVID. And I thought, so when he won the election, the same thing happened. He woke me up in the middle of the night. Trump won. And I was like, what? Trump won. And it was this like, no. And I, I had a lot of feelings about that, of course. I thought I'd have feelings about this, but I just don't. I mean, millions of us have had this infection. And his, the way he responds to it is going to change public policy. And I don't believe that he has the capacity to grow or learn or be humble about it at all. And I worry that he's going to use it. He's going to not be too sick and he's going to be fine. And he's going to use it to say how macho he is and what a winner he is and how physically fit he is. And people are going to be sympathetic to him. People who tend to be sympathetic to sick people will be sympathetic to him. And people who are drawn to his, the, the toxic masculine entitled machismo pretense that he puts out, people who are drawn to that are going to be drawn to that. And I feel like this might increase the number of people who want to vote for him. That's, that's the main feeling that I have is that, oh shit, is this going to mean more yeah. people who want to vote for him? There are people, I mean, there are some people who have a kind of the opposite sense that it goes to show that he couldn't even protect himself and he's the president. He should be the one who has every resource available to protect himself and he couldn't even protect himself yeah. with his policies and it sort of highlights his hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is not something people who vote for Trump necessarily are bothered by. Right. No. Can't even recognize no, I think that that's an intellectual response and the people who are going to vote for Trump are not doing so for intellectual reasons. Yeah. They're doing so because they're gut and, and propaganda and being told something that they want to believe is true. There's Antifa. Let's talk about the calling in course you're taking. Uh, I'm taking this course that's led by Loretta Ross, the storied and brilliant Loretta Ross, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called Calling In, Calling Out Culture. Which is about exactly that. How can we transform call-out culture into something that's truly productive and builds um, unity and community and moves us in a good direction? And there are, so there's a couple of really important ideas that I think apply to this moment of Trump having COVID. One mm -hmm. is the sort of like levels of influence or overlap. So the, there's a sort of like the people who overlap 90% with your ideas. Ignore the 10%. They may or may not have precisely your response and set of words for describing their response. But there are 90% overlap. You don't call those people out. You don't call those people in. They are close of fucking enough. Those are your people you're working with. And you don't need to police their detailed use of anything at all. Like you're a coalition. Work together. People in the 90% don't bother. Just be like, that. just be willing to let things go. And if you feel a thing inside your body about letting things go among the people you 90% agree with, some of the wisdom from the course is that our self-righteousness around these issues comes from an incapacity to forgive ourselves. Our, we are um, more agitated from a fear of being seen as a hypocrite. We can't let stuff go because we can't let ourselves go. We cannot forgive ourselves when we transgress. And Olive agrees with me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So notice that dynamic happening in you in your night when you're talking to your the 90% group and you notice yourself struggling to let some shit go. That's because uh, you are you're terrified of being called out for something you have transgressed on. And so you have to call somebody else out before they can before you can get scolded for the thing. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. So then you've got the 75% where you have uh, mostly overlapping. If you can make sort of your ideas clear to each other. And these are people you can call in not for the things that they have done wrong, wrong, but rather focus on ways that you can collaborate, things that you can share together. Then we get to the uh, the muddled middle. These are folks who are just like in the... In the they have about like 50% average. Oh, so, so this is noisy. What is going on with her? I don't know what's the matter with her. So I, my 50% muddled middle would be like a person who's on the left and is so far on the left that they're thinking they're not going to vote. Right. Because it's not going to make a difference because the system is so fucked up. So they're not going to vote. That's what I would consider a person who 50% overlaps with me. And that's a person who might be persuadable. Like if your vote means nothing to you would you would you vote for my sake like would you contribute your vote to me and what matters to me so that i feel like safer or would you vote for people who are more disadvantaged than you just 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 chuck your one little vote into the pot and say this direction Mm -hmm. let's go broadly in this direction so those are people in the muddled middle, 50% overlap with you, who are persuadable to participate in collaboration. And then you get to the 0 to 25% people. And they're hard to work with. Yeah. Um, they're people who... Oh my God, Olive. They're the people who hold their nose to vote for Trump. Among... When it comes to my sort of rings of influence, these are people who are voting Republican because they are against abortion. They dislike sort of everything else about Trump, but they're on this one issue. They are immovable. It's difficult and it takes an existing strong relationship with that person in order to be able to have a conversation that can make any kind of a difference. Because really, like, it, can anybody talk you out of all the things you believe? Nope. Is anybody ever going con- to convince you that abortion is murder? Nope. Yeah. And nobody's going to convince a person that's not actually true. I I have convinced a pro-life person that uh, abortion is not murder. Yeah. I did that. That's amazing. But, like, it's what I do kind of for a living. Right. You And like, we had an existing relationship. We trusted and liked each other already. You trusted and liked someone who believed that abortion was murder? Yeah. Wow. We shared an office in grad school. Oh, okay. Um, and so we, like, had to get, like, we were sharing that office for three years. Mm-hmm. We had to get along. Mm-hmm. That's just That's just what that was. Mm-hmm. So we found a way to do it. And she listened to me. And actually, one of the most beautiful things is that uh, after the 2004 election, I was on the office floor, sitting on the floor with my head in my hands, sobbing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I couldn't get my shit together. Yeah. And she came over and sat next to me and said, Emily, I don't know if this is going to help at all, but I want you to know that I heard what you were saying and Bush is too extreme even for me. Wow. And I voted for Kerry. Wow. Remember when Bush was extreme? Do. I do. Remember that? And uh, so... Like, it can happen, but it takes the existing relationship to make it happen. And there are the people who are like zeros, the actual, the fascists. Yep. Probably my neighbors. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. 
I started taking this bystander class because I wanted to know what kind of conversation I should have with neighbors who have, we support our law enforcement sign and mm -hmm. uh, no va an anti-vax sign in the front yard mm -hmm. and now an American flag. And they, so it feels not great. And what I learned from this class is moral of the story. It takes a relationship. Yeah. And it is easier to confront someone with something you disagree about when you have that relationship. Yeah. That makes sense. So, <laughs> and a lot of the feelings when it comes to calling people in versus so Loretta Ross's definition is that calling in is calling out with love mm -hmm. seems like a good definition to me mm -hmm. and the difficulty is that a lot of us in the class we have these breakout groups where we would talk about our experiences of calling people in or out and being called in or out when we're in a moment of wanting to call someone out we're usually sort of instantaneously overwhelmed and flushed with emotion, often rage. Mm -hmm. And like you want to say all kinds of things that if you say it, like they're just not going to believe you and you're saying it in a way where they're going to shut you out, mm -hmm. which is the problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in my own experience, actually, my only experiences of successfully, I mean, because basically when you're calling someone in or out, really you want to like convince them that they are wrong about a thing and you are right, right? Yeah. Like when you call someone out, that's what you're doing. You're saying you're wrong and I'm right. The only times I have done this successfully are when I've had a very strong relationship established and then I lose my shit, honestly. Like the calm, gentle conversation isn't whatever moves the needle in my experience. Nope, nope. That's totally true. Yeah, that's totally true. A lot of people were like, no, it was like when I finally, when I was calm and accepting, yep. when I prioritized the relationship, that, yep. that was what helped. Yeah, I spent a year and a half politely arguing in meetings and bringing it up like, hey, could we please make this change? This is a thing. A year and a half I spent doing that. And then one morning I had a fucking meltdown and screamed my head off and he finally heard me. Yeah. Yeah. And positionality matters. When we go into a room, we are white ladies mm -hmm. and uh, we get heard when we cry. Yeah. People whose position is subordinate to us experience our crying as manipulative and maybe white men also experience our crying as manipulative yeah they're the one who started that fucking narrative yes they are because they only noticed us when they cried so they started saying well them crying must be manipulative and then that story got picked up by everybody else in the world and now when white women cry it's manipulative thanks patriarchy right. we can't feel our feelings but it turns out we can under some circumstances, use that for good. Yeah. Because I have persuaded an anti-abortion person that abortion isn't murder. Yeah. For example. And a Bernie bro that, like, he needs to fucking vote for Biden and, like, suck his shit up. Yeah. But it requires the relationship in order to make that happen. So I have a friend who's a teacher who posted a thing on Facebook, an interview with Nicole Wallace on her show on MSNBC, where she asked a question of one of her guests who speaks eloquently for three minutes about the state of race relations in America. And then she concludes it saying, what else? And he says, God help us. And there the clip ends. And he posted that Nicole Wallace had said something, not what else, but, you know, anything else. Anything else was what he said that she said, which is not what she said. And he described her response as being like condescending and dismissive, which Nicole Wallace is not condescending and dismissive. So I pointed out, that he uh, he may have misinterpreted what she said. And like, regardless of what she actually said or did, let's look at her actions. Her actions are she had this guest on her show and invited him to speak and allowed him to speak for three uninterrupted minutes of airtime, which is 
an act of generosity that not a lot of new show hosts allow their guests at all. So clearly that action is, you know, more important. And the guy kind of was like ready to concede. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I misinterpreted it. And yeah. I mean, we're taught that women can't, women aren't nice unless they're smiling. Like a woman can't be listening carefully to what you have to say and taking you seriously unless she's smiling at you, which Nicole Wallace was not doing in this clip. There was not a, like a nice, happy thing going on. They were talking about the fucked up relationships between black people and the patriarchy. A anyway, but that was a person that I've known for quite a, like years and who I know is a, a very liberal and very open minded. And he, he was saying, like, I want to do better as a white person. I want to do better than Nicole Wallace. And I was like, she's doing pretty good. So that worked. That was a that was a time when it worked. Yeah. A lot of the calling out classes about affect management, about managing your feelings in order to not hurt somebody else's, which is a thing women have to do all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And it feels unfair. And I think one of the reasons why we resist it is not just that we don't want to be called out as a hypocrite, but also because we are so fucking tired of always managing our feelings for everybody else all the time mm -hmm. that when something is egregious, we want to call it egregious. We want to react with our full rage and it doesn't help usually sometimes it does i find it does in the right circumstances when the relationship is there mm -hmm. but this is this is exactly the question so the last piece of this that i want to make sure we talked about given like this is what it's like for you to live with covid and now trump has covid and people are going to have reactions and they're going to post those reactions on the internet they're going to have ideas that they post on the internet and what are you going to do are you going to call people out if you disagree with them if they're 90 percent how about don't waste your energy? But also, there is the private reaction you have and the public reaction you have. I'm totally sure that the Biden camp has had a very wide range of conversations and a very wide range of feelings about this situation. I think a variety of dances have been done. <laughs> My guess. Maybe. And that's the thing is that like only a very narrow band of them get put out in public. And one of the things social media has deprived us of is an inner world and an outer world. We don't recognize that there is a meaningful and important difference between like the sum total of our internal experience and the parts that we put out in public for other people to view. Just because you have a thought or feeling doesn't mean it's a thought or feeling that belongs on social media. Really? Doesn't eat. <laughs> Are you sure? That can't be right. So that's sarcasm. I think people have a hard time with this when they don't have a bubble of love, like a little safe place to express the full range of all the things where they're not going to be judged, where they're not going to be shamed, where they can have all the like difficult, not best of themselves feelings, the schadenfreude, mm -hmm. recognizing that that is just one of the many feelings that are happening simultaneously with all the other ones. None of those feelings that you have are your identity. You you are not your feelings. Your feelings are not you. They're just things that are happening to you in response to a shift in the reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in order to avoid being called out or called in or contributing in a not great way, process like the all of it and make a considered choice about what your voice, what is the position of your voice and what should a voice in that position be saying? in this moment. My favorite example of this is Mandy Patinkin's Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have seen Mandy Patinkin's Twitter feed. I have because you send them to me. It's 
It's so good. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter. So Manny Patinkin and his wife post videos on Twitter with the help of his son. And when Trump's COVID diagnosis was announced, first they posted a video. All the words were nothing was the text that went with the video. And the video was a minute and a half of them staring at the camera in total silence. You could only tell it was a video because they blinked and their dog made noise. Just total silence. Mm -hmm. And then the next video was another minute and a half of total silence. Them looking at the camera. The only word that went with it was everything. Mm -hmm. And they had the word vote written over and over all over their faces, all over their arms and all over their hands. And they just like showed the palms of their hands and all over their faces where vote was written. Yeah. So they were really thoughtful about what the position of their voice is and what their voice should be saying in that moment. Yeah. There were some people who were like, I don't get it, which is fine. That's fine. But as a couple of artists who are politically vocal long before Trump was a thing, they have found a way to be on Twitter in a way that is perfectly positioned for who they are and what they do. Also, Mandy Patinkin is my dad now. <laughs> Therefore, he's your dad. So I hope it's okay that Mandy Patinkin is your dad now. Yeah, I'll take that all day long. <laughs> Anybody else needs a dad? Mandy Patinkin. He's on Twitter. Follow him. He can be your dad, too. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's good. He's, he's totally, he's totally the best. I sent you the video where he, like, improvises a song to his son. I don't remember. There's a video where... You send me a lot of Manny Patinkin videos. His son is like, hey, mom, hey, dad, what's a, what's a great love song? And Catherine, mom, can't remember any specific song. And Manny Patinkin starts making a song up mm -hmm. about how much he loves his son. <laughs> and his son, who is also, of course, a musician, mm -hmm. starts like improvising and like <laughs> a, a, a counterpoint, a counter melody. Aww. That's adorable. <laughs> It is. It was so fucking adorable. I watched it many, many times. <laughs> the point is, <laughs> he has considered what the position of his voice is and what a voice in that position should be saying. Yeah. So if you're looking for a thoughtful way to participate in the conversation, there's a model there. And of course, I'm not going to talk about examples of people who I feel like have not thought about the position of their voice and what a voice in that position should be saying. Because a position of your voice does not include pointing out people who are doing it wrong. <laughs> That is right. That's exactly right. I wasn't going to say that part out loud, but thanks. You bet. That's what I'm here for. It's basically my only job here. <laughs> Amelia, the one who says it out loud. <laughs> yep. So the position of my voice is, and really both of us, is like, Amelia had the COVID. Long hauler. Health affected over months. A couple of white ladies with a, you know... Not no audience. A few thousand people who pay attention to what we say. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying in this episode is recognize what position your voice has and consider what a voice with that position you would want to be contributing to the conversation. And filter your participation in public to that stuff, recognizing that you have a whole lot of other stuff happening inside you that just doesn't go in the public part. And if you need a place to put that, let find the people in your life with whom you can share those feelings without judgment or shame or criticism, recognizing that they are just reactions in the moment and they are not definitions of your identity. So the relationships matter. 
Yeah. Is what you're saying. What I'm saying is the relationships matter. COVID is a drag. Relationships matter. Therefore, consider what the position of your voice is and what a voice in that position has to contribute to the public conversation. Yeah. I wish I had stronger feelings I could express about Trump so you could coach me on how to express them, but I just, I just don't. Yeah. And I'm not going to say mine because a voice with my position, <laughs> that's not my that's role. not part of your, yeah. I have a very wide range of feelings. This is me not saying them. That silence? Yeah. That was me not saying them. I don't know if it's because I had COVID and so like it's still, my immune system is still getting over it. My immune system is still figuring out how to be done responding to the virus. Like the virus is long gone and my hair is still falling out. Like I, maybe I'm just too focused on me and so I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I really think that the, if I had strong feelings or if I really had schadenfreude... It does make me consider what would happen if he experienced hair loss. <laughs> Donald Trump's hair is very important to him. It will not happen until after the election, though, because it, it took... Two yeah, because it takes a month for that to... Yeah, for that to... Yep. <laughs> That's funny, though. I'm not, I'm not wishing it on him. I'm just... I don't know if I would... I probably would say them out loud. If I had feelings, I probably would say them because... See, you're the one who says them, yeah. I, yeah. And you having had it, I think that changes the position of your voice. Yeah. And also the position of my voice is not that of a a health professional. You're a public health expert. So you have a greater responsibility to be more specific about the way you use language and the character of the inflection and the affect that you project. And I do not... I'm a musician. Right. I have feelings and I express them. Maybe the last and most important thing that I have learned from the calling in, calling out culture with Loretta Ross, which I'm just going to keep saying over and over again, hoping that people are going to Google it and find out when she's teaching it again. I don't know when it was, but it was only $20 for this four week course. It is bananas how little she charges for it. But one of the most important things that I took away was that the main thing you need is to sustain your respect for yourself when you think about how you're going to look at your behavior in the future what you did in this moment you need to be able to respect yourself that's why i say the things that's why i say it out loud and so this has been this week's episode of the feminist survival project 2020 if anything was written it was written by awesome emily nagoski and amelia nagoski <laughs> You can find us on the social media at FSP 2020. It is uh, a curated rendition of the things that are happening on our insides because we only post things that we feel a voice in our position can post productively. Thanks for listening. Also, Mandy Patinkin is my dad now. (laughs) Therefore, he's your dad. So I hope it's okay that Mandy Patinkin is your dad. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.